You are now tuned into the truth frequency. We are TFR. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to be. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. listening to the Revolutionary Radio Project with your host, Rob Skiba. All I'm offering is the truth. Hello and welcome to the Revolutionary Radio Project. I'm your host, Rob Skiba, and I'm excited this evening to be talking with my friend, Dr. Judd Burton. It's always a pleasure having him on. We have some very interesting conversations every time we do a show together, so I'll go ahead and get him on right now here. Judd, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Rob, how are you? Doing really good. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. So, uh, you've been on my show before, uh, going all the way back to the old days on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, Did introductions with you there. But you've also been here on the uh, Truth Frequency Radio Network with me a few times. So, I won't go through your whole bio and stuff, but maybe just as a quick refresher. It has been a while, so uh, maybe as a refresher, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, if you would. Sure. Uh, I'm primarily a, a historian of religion uh, of the early church. Uh, I have a PhD in history with a focus in religion. Um, I also have a master's degree in anthropology uh, with uh, uh, focuses in uh, cultural anthropology, the anthropology of religion and archaeology. And um, I'm, I'm very interested in the ancient world, the prehistoric world, and, and generally looking at, at religion and mythology uh, through the biblical lens. And uh, I, I have been an academic for 20 years. I've taught at a number of universities and colleges, and I'm currently the uh, director of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. Yeah, how's that going, by the way? Oh, fantastic. Um you're, you're looking at the epicenter of it right now. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I've got uh, several uh, book projects out. And, um, you know, everything is uh, just because of the nature of the, the times we live in and the pandemic, everything's kind of at a uh, kind of to do things a little bit differently. Uh, everything's online. Uh, but I, I, I picked up a couple of new students this week. I've got really great students who are really wanting to learn about the context of the biblical world. And, yeah, it's it's going well. God's God's blessing it. That's awesome. So, yeah, that was going to be an online school anyway, wasn't it? Or were you looking at a yeah, that Yeah, I mean, yeah, I wanted, I wanted the worldwide reach anyway. And you, the good thing about, you know, online education is that you can do that. And online education is something that I did, you know, within the context of my academic teaching. So um, it's not really that big of a transition that way. Uh, but, you know, I, I get to to teach and share ideas on, on uh, you know, programs like your own now and, uh, you know, at conferences and, and, and speaking engagements and things like that. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's going really well. I, I'm, I'm happy with it. Very cool. 
Um, so you sent me something uh, recently, uh, a new project that you were really excited about, and you're like, hey, dude, we got to do a show. So uh, here we are. So uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on that, uh, what led you into the research, and then we can just uh, jump right in. Well, you know, a lot of people will know me from my research on the, the biblical giants uh, and uh, also the, the side of Peneus at the foot of Mount Hermon, um, which, of course, were related. Uh, and the whole purpose really behind doing a, a book like Interview with a Giant and some of the follow-ups like the Nephilim dossier uh, was to try and, and apply anthropological models to see what I could glean out of the problem because I I, I didn't really see anybody um, doing that and so I thought that I would bring this skill set that I had to the table and you know although I'm not a linguist by trade I do have some training in linguistics and I certainly have training in a number of different languages um, and so this, uh, the way that this happened is I, I was asleep and I woke up in the middle of the night about a week ago, about three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I used to do this exercise with my students in my world civ classes, my world civilization classes, uh, in, in which I would illustrate the spread of, of languages and the relationship between words from uh, similar origin language families, uh, such as words that share Proto-Indo-European uh, origins, such as uh, uh, Raja, the Sanskrit word for king. Uh, it's related to, because it comes originally from the same corpus of, of language, uh, it's related to words like uh, uh, rex in Latin uh, and re in Spanish. And even in English, we retain words like royal and regal uh, that are related to this. And that was the first thing that occurred to me when I woke up. Uh, but then something else occurred to me. I'll to you something. Um, people like uh, Dr. Michael Heiser and, and Derek Gilbert, Sharon Gilbert, um, and uh, there's an Estonian a Syriologist named Amar, Dr. Amar Anus, who is um, Hello, and he's also done video. some work in this field. Today we're going to show but you how you can sell your Specifically, I'm referring to uh, a grouping of words around the word Rephaim. Uh, and again, many listeners will be familiar with this as a tribe of giants in the ancient Levant, uh, usually translated as the shades or the dead ones, uh, or wraiths. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but what's interesting about that word um, and its, its definition is that it, it's related to a number of other words in uh, Mesopotamian languages and in in the Phoenician tongue, um, and they just so happen to have this, they share this this consonant vowel, what linguists would call a morpheme, uh, R-E or whatever the vowel is, it follows the R, uh, and the words mean king or ruler, uh, and, the, and again, we can flesh this out uh, as we go along in the program, but just just 
for brevity, uh, the Mesopotamian Rop or Rop means prince or ruler, and the Ugaritic, which would be the Phoenician, uh, you find uh, Rop and Rapi, and this means uh, the same thing, basically long-dead ancestor kings. It was part of a funeral cult. And so, just like the, the Rephaim, usually translated as rays or, or shades or, or dead ones, there's that connection with the, uh, the underworld. Um, the, uh, uh, in the case of Mesopotamia, that would be the abyss. Uh, in the Hebrew tradition, that would be Sheol. And I thought, that's really interesting that you have all these words related to it that mean king, related to Rephaim. And you also have all, uh, all these Indo-European words, which mean king or ruler as well, that are based on the same, that same morpheme, the, uh, the initial R and then a vowel. Uh, and you can play a little hard and fast with, uh, or I should say fast and loose with the, the vowel in uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern languages, because as you know from studying them yourself, um, you know, the vowels came later. The vowel markings came later in uh, Semitic tongues in Mesopotamia, that sort of thing. Um, so as my mind is trying, I wrote a few things down in, in my phone, and I wanted to get finish my, my night's rest and get to the project fresh the next day. But I, I, I wondered, you know, how far down does this rabbit hole go? You know, are there other other <laughs> words uh, from this this uh, the the Proto Indo European heartland, as as linguists call it? Um, are there other words that branch off from that? In other words, Eurasian languages, languages that we find in the Old World. Are there other words that are similar to this in construct and cognate? In other words, do they do they contain this morpheme? Uh, and do they carry the the idiomatic baggage? Um, you know, they, the, so I began to look for words for king or ruler, some kind of uh, leader. And what I found astounded me. And as a footnote to this, before we get rolling, uh, I should say that when I'm referring to Proto-Indo-European, this is sort of a, a reverse-engineered language uh, that was believed to have been spoken. Uh, in Central Asia, the the region between the Black Sea, um, I guess it would technically be the steppe region uh, of of um, Western Asia, the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. This is the Proto-Indo-European heartland. And interestingly enough, the lower end of that is Eastern Turkey and Northern Mesopotamia. So there's definitely some some diffusion. Uh, in terms of, of ideas and words that's taking place there. Uh, I decided to do just a kind of cursory survey of words for king or ruler uh, in Eurasian languages and see what I could come up with. And what I found was nothing short of astounding to me uh, because you find an overabundance uh, of words that contain this, this R vowel morpheme that mean king or ruler. And, um, you know, languages are not static entities. They're, they're, they're constantly changing. You know, they don't stand still. And that, that's due to all kinds of 
cultural mechanisms, contact, diffusion, um, recycling. Uh, but what's interesting is that you you literally have thousands of years of this particular idiom being contained within these R, you know, R vowel morphemes, um, or rather, more to the point, the the R words that mean king or ruler, uh, and are so similar in construct to, uh, you know, the the same morphemes in Rephaim and Rab and Rabu and Rapi that we find in the ancient Near East, uh, that, that that seems more than just a statistical anomaly. It seems, it, it, it's a pretty sure bet that that's not entirely incidental, in other words. Um, and so on the one hand, you could look at this purely from a scholarly standpoint and say that well it's just the sort of innocuous change that languages go through uh, in the natural course of their development but for those of us who believe in our machinations of the watchers and the giants uh, we know that they were not above corrupting and misusing and making parodies of things that were good and so it shouldn't surprise us a great deal particularly when we read about their character traits uh, as as usurpers and uh, oppressive uh, manipulating uh, kinds of entities uh, it shouldn't surprise us a great deal that they would they would flip a concept like a a, a perfect sovereign ruler of the universe, in this case Yahweh, and take his, his role of rulership and turn it on its head uh, to mean something else. Uh, and it, it it's these fallen angels and giants who serve as the first god kings of ancient civilizations, um, which, which is interesting when you begin to look at the, uh, particularly the ancient Near Eastern stuff, because so much of that is associated with uh, the worship of these ancestor kings, the emulation of these ancestor kings, the placation uh, of these ancestor kings, who are often described as divine or semi-divine. And, of course, in the, the, those of us that subscribe to a biblical worldview know these as the Watchers and the Giants. And um, it's interesting also that when you look at the earliest, the most antique of civilizations, uh, they're almost without exception um, theocratic monarchies. In other words, they, they're political systems were highly integrated with their religious systems um, and they were autocratic monarchies at that uh, because once the uh, who we might term the god kings the the watchers and the giants once they pass this mantle this institution along to humans humans can continue that and rule continue to either eat their societies and themselves think of think of their their place on earth uh, as either an emissary of the gods or their divine themselves you just you think of the pharaohs of ancient Egypt uh, and you've got an idea of what we're talking about there you know you, again you can any of the early civilizations on the planet 
you're going to find this theocratic monarchy model. Um, and again, this is part of the cultural baggage that's towed along with these titles for king or ruler throughout the ages. And I, I, I'm starting to think, again, that's not incidental. And uh, here the evidence is hiding in plain sight. You know, the, all of these languages are well documented, um, you know, decades and in some cases centuries worth of scholarship has been done on them. Uh, and so I'm just, I'm really just kind of looking at the meta picture here um, based on a, a, something that I believe God put on my heart, put on my mind, mind to work on. Uh, and that's how I started going down this rabbit trail. Um, very interesting. While you were talking, uh, let me switch over here. Uh, while you were talking, I was looking up the Hebrew word, uh, Rafa, Raphaim. That's Strong's number uh, 7497. Mm-hmm. And um, let me see if I can do a screen share here just a second. Um, there's something that I use quite a bit when I'm studying uh, Hebrew in particular, and that is the uh, Hebrew alphabet guide that was created by uh, a guy named Dr. Um, Joel Young. Uh, he's a messianic Hebrew chiropractor who lives near me that uh, he uh, actually used to used him to heal my knee a while back when I had a really bad knee problem, and he just prayed over it and barely did anything, you know, chiropractic over it, just did a prayer over it, touched it, and boom, I was like instantaneously healed. Um, anyway, he put together this chart. Let me see if I can... Can you see that? <clears throat> I can. Yeah, so uh, what he does with this chart is he has the the, the typical standard, you know, current Hebrew uh, rendition of each letter, the name of the letter, like Aleph, the the pronunciation of it, the numerical value of it, and then the letter meaning. So we, mm-hmm. what I learned when I was studying Hebrew was that there is a idiom that if every letter has seven meanings, then every word has seventy. Uh, sort of a Hebrew idiom is like because each letter in the Hebrew language has meaning of its own. So therefore, a ro- a, a word that typically has uh, I believe it's called uh, Shoresh, Shoresh, something like that. It's a two or three letter root word that has a meaning in and of itself. But then when you add prefixes and suffixes to that root, it also has meaning. So you have the the combined meaning of the letters that comprise the word as well as the root word meaning as well as the addition of the prefix and suffix meanings. So, you know, it's, it's a deep language in, in short, the best way to sum, summarize it. Yeah. And so with the Hebrew word Rafa... Resh pei aleph. Um, the resh um, means the highest, most important person. Pei means mouth, speak, open. And aleph means God, creator, first strength, leader, Lord, king, sovereign. So you'd be like the most important. I mean, if you were to take this and string it into a sentence, like what, was the, what would the right. letter meanings be? It would essentially be the highest, right. most important person who speaks on behalf of God, you know. Right. There's the, the mockery, the parody, the turning it on on its head. Hebrew is fascinating that way because you're right that all, all the letters have meanings in in and of themselves. That's why oftentimes when you when you look in a Hebrew lexicon or something, there you know there's a paragraph worth of, of meanings for each particular <laughs> word, and they 
Yeah, it, it's a daunt. You know, Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern languages in general are, are pretty daunting that way. But the word Rafa also, uh, as I understand it, has a, a meaning, a connotation to it of healing, and even resurrection. Um, That's right. And so you have like you know Jehovah Rafa, God my healer. You know Yahuwah my healer. Right. Um, so I've always been intrigued by that because you have. I've not looked at it in, in the sense of you know sovereignty, you know, uh, rulership, you know kingship the way you're discussing it. I've always looked at it as you know the, the connecting it with the word for healing and in some cases resurrection. So it's almost like the the resurrected ones or something. I, I don't know, man. I mean, this is like a deep word. And, and you said something earlier. You like you had the thought. You know, I wonder how deep this rabbit hole goes. That's a <laughs> That's a dangerous question. At least I've found is anytime I was like, how well, deep, how deep does this yeah, go? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, the I mean, the report that I'm working on right now is aptly titled a preliminary report. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, this is just scratching the surface, and and um, the catalog that I made consists of about eighty of these words. Wow. And I, you know, there are thousands of languages both dead and living um, that you could probably plow through and find even more mm-hmm. um, so but it doesn't surprise I, go go ahead I'm well sorry. so I was gonna ask you like uh, you, right now you're you're tracking down the rabbit hole that deals with the uh, uh, various renditions of ancient words that mean king a ruler leader. Uh, how does that, or did, have you gone this way yet? How does that relate to the other meanings of like healing or even resurrection? Those connotations I don't know about because I've been so focused on the uh, the king ruler idiom. Uh, that's not to say that it's not there in some cases. You know, um, words like that can you know words can sneak up on you and show you all <laughs> kinds of of things uh, but I in this context I'm, I'm I have been looking for words for ruler and sovereign but uh, I, I am familiar with the usage of uh, those morphemes in Hebrew um, and the the word uh, refa as a, a healer or physician um, so and I, I think Derek I think Derek and Sharon Gilbert talk a little bit about that in their book veneration okay uh i'm looking on uh um biblehub.com and it, it says it has a root or is it a root or is it related to uh yeah origin word origin uh strong's number 7503 rafa resh pay uh hey which means sink or relax I don't know if that mm-hmm. that helps out any, but it's like lazy. Other usages throughout the Bible: are lazy, idle, forsake. Yeah, well, and it may that may have something to do with the the ultimate lazy state uh, of death, um, because you're hmm. you're not moving. But it, it probably goes farther than that. It, it may go. It, it may be connected with the idea of the underworld, right? Um, the, the the eternal rest, so to speak. Right, right. So uh, we got um, about two minutes before we go to break. Uh, you know, probably one of the most famous of the Raphaim was Agabashan, who mm-hmm. is said to have been the remnant of the Raphaim. Uh, 
which I, I frankly, have never really known what to do with that. I'm like, you know, I mean, there's there's rabbinic Jewish tradition that he's a pre-flood character that survived by hanging onto yeah. the ark and all that. I, I typically don't accept that. I, I, I recognize that as um, like Jewish fairy tale, Jack and the Beanstalk kind of thing. Well, it's it's <clears> a little cartoonish. Yeah. It's very cartoonish. I mean, he's like yeah. like this. I mean, he's basically got his arm around the ark like it's a log or something. And, and you know, Noah's <laughs> right. Noah's feeding right. him through the window and whatnot, and that just doesn't right. fit the the narrative of, that we read about later with his bedstead. I mean, he's only fifteen, eighteen feet tall according to that. So, you know, it's a far cry from the character that we see hanging on the ark. Uh, not to say that Certainly. there couldn't be other characters, even from the pre-flood world, that had that name. It's not like you know, Rob is. I'm the only Rob that ever existed in history. You know, there's, sure. there are you know, been plenty of Juds in history, uh, right. and plenty of characters in the Bible that have you know other characters with the same name. So, uh, but w- w- what was your take on Aga Bashan as it pertains to this particular research that you're doing? Well, arguably, he's the he's the most well known of the Rephaim, and in a lot of ways, he's he's sort of the he sort of embodies uh, the idiom that I'm getting at here. This this oppressive usurping king. Um, we we certainly get at least the the implication um, that uh, he was not. Um, not the not the nicest of fellows, not the nicest of, of rulers, uh, 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 you know, especially when you you consider um, the the way that the Rephaim situated themselves in the Levant. It's like you know they were they were perched and ready to try and thwart the Hebrew uh, mm-hmm. con- reconquest of Canaan. Right. All right. Hold that thought. We are going to our first break here and uh, we'll talk some more when we come back Uh, from the break. We're back on the Revolutionary Radio Project. I'm your host, Rob Skiba, and I'm talking with my guest, Judd Burton. And uh, right before the break, we were discussing Og of Bishan. And so we'll pick up where we left off there. I was just t- telling Judd during the break that uh, I typically have uh, a million browser windows open. I have two large monitors. I have one very large monitor in front of me for my primary monitor, and then I have a pretty decent-sized side monitor. And it's not uncommon for me to have easily 100 browsers. That's not that's not an exaggeration. Easily have 100 tabs open on my browsers because I'm always doing you know, the rabbit trails that you, you start setting one little thing and it yeah. takes you in a million directions. So I have to imagine that yeah. you, you must operate something like that. Uh, yes, I, I, I suffer from the same dilemma almost <laughs> daily. Yeah. And, and probably I would venture to say the same is true on uh, printed uh, resources because, you know, like like for me, I love uh, an author that that footnotes extensively, uh, and I've found that footnotes are my friend and my enemy because they're my friend because yes. I love it. it. It allows me to go down the same path that that person took, you know, to, to find their research. Uh, but as a result of that, I tend to have you know half a dozen or more books at all times 
in various stages of completion because it's like, ooh, that sounds cool. And you go over and put that book down and go get another book. And, oh, crap, that one's got footnotes too. And you're like, oh, cool. And you, like, see, you get the stack of un- yeah. <laughs> incompleted books right all around you. <laughs> well, now you know why I put the, the bookcase behind me. You're looking at the most orderly <laughs> portion of my library. If you were to see my desk, I've got <laughs> it's stuff everywhere. It looks like it's a it is a Sherlock Holmes level <laughs> mess on my desk. Nice, uh, yeah, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, we we're talking about uh, Aga Bashan, and, and you know, maybe we can back up just a little bit. And you know, I know you you cut your teeth on uh, the the Banyas, the, uh, the accessory of Philippi, and the altar of Pan, and all that stuff. But going back even before your college days and doing your your dissertation and all that. Uh, what was it that made you start looking into this topic of the Watchers and the Giants to begin with? You know, um, that really stems from um, my upbringing in a Christian home, but also all the time, really, that I spent with um, my maternal grandmother and my great aunt and uncle. And, um, you know, both of which were, were book, you know, all of those people were book people. They, you know, had books lying around. In fact, I, I was introduced to the classics, but you know, because of my my grandmother, and um, all, she always had books on not just the Bible, but books on mythology and history. And my aunt was uh, my great aunt was um, uh, she was a, a student of prophecy, and so a lot of her biblical studies. Uh, works were were books of prophecy and um, I don't know I, I just I have these memories of of reading about you know Genesis as a young young boy and seeing it through the lens of you know what was mythologically possible how does this fit in you know you know there's this weird stuff here about you know these giants you know who were on the earth how does this fit into you know the rest of world mythology it's the same thing so even as a you know you know during the idols of my youth um i I was thinking pretty hard and fast about at least the possibilities that you know passages like the one in genesis and the other passages that talk about giants um you know how exactly they fit into the, the the niche where they were ensconced in world culture and and world mythology, uh, but uh, you know it, it was the same to a degree at my home. You know because my parents always had books. My dad uh, has taught Sunday school for years and years, dec- decades at this point, and uh, always had material on history and the Bible. And uh, so I was just sort of awash in it. You know. And I would, um, at the same time, I was reading, you know, Bullfinch's mythology and, and Tolkien. Uh, you know, I'd be reading, you know, the Bible itself and commentaries on the Bible. Uh, so my, I, I suppose, w- without even, God obviously had a hand in it, but I was al- already beginning to think about those things when I was a young boy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I mean that's not the I mean you you had the the family environment that that fostered that curiosity and 
that information. Of course, we have pop culture with the, like you said, Lord of the Rings sure. types of movies and stuff like that. Sure. But as you became more of an academic, uh, how is that type of topic treated within academia, you know, especially in the secular world? What's their take on it? And, and how did you navigate through that <laughs> uh, as a student? Uh, those are all excellent questions. Um you know, thankfully, I had I had mentors like the late um, Dr. George Knott, who sort of took me under their wing, and um, you know, it was it was Dr. He was actually the the brother-in-law of the pastor at the church I went to, and before I knew about Indiana Jones, I knew I knew about Dr. Knott, and I. I would just pick his brain. Everything kind of took me under his wing, and uh, I eventually did study Greek with him. And uh, he was the one who convinced me to go on the that first expedition to Banyas. Oh wow! And uh, but just in, you know, as I matured as a student and, and an academic, and, and went through my training, um, and and actually you know began teaching and got professorships and things like that. Uh, it's it's really quite kind of a shame the way that that these topics you know are labeled as fringe or or um, you know outside the realm of possibility or whatever all, all that serves to do is illustrate that um, academic freedom these days is an illusion um, and I, I had colleagues who could respect that um, after all I was approaching this material as intellectual history to begin with um, one of the things that sort of circled me back to it, you know, as I was doing my dissertation research, was all the the uh, patristic literature from the, the the early church fathers and their references to the Watchers and the Giants. Um, and so, you know, I might have, I suppose at one point I was a little naive about it um, in, in terms of expecting, you know, look, if you don't, if you don't, it's okay if you don't believe like I do if you if you're not invested because of faith but you should at least respect the the research um, on its own merits I mean it's culture it's it's intellectual history uh, but more often than not you get raised eyebrows and um, you know that sort of thing um, I'm not saying that I've got the Fox Mulder treatment you know, <laughs> stuck in a basement office or anything but but there were times that I did sort of feel like that um, because the academic landscape, quite frankly, has changed. Uh, you know, postmodernism has, has eroded our educational system, not in education, but also in higher education. Um, and and it's, it's really quite revolting um, and hurtful, too, you know, because I see the... I see the traditions that a lot of my mentors were, were raised in and what, you know, the things that they exemplified for me as scholars and many of them were, were men of God, men and women of God. They were, they were people of great faith and they were also these just wonderful, brilliant scholars. Um, and that, that world of a, a cooperating community of scholars uh, with di divergent research agendas, that, that doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. Um, so now, did you go through? It, it, did you go through uh, uh, secular 
college? I did. So, well, my, my bachelor's degree I, I, I acquired from a, a Baptist university, Hardin-Simmons mm-hmm. University in Abilene. And then I, I pursued graduate studies at Texas Tech University, which was a, a state university. So most of that training came from the, the secular standpoint. But even in, even through that, I had a number of professors, particularly those when I got to my doctoral level, um, who were people of faith. And uh, not- notably, uh, Dr. John Howe, who's still at, at Texas Tech, uh, and is a, a wonderful medievalist and uh, uh, a great man of faith. So, so, so that's like, that's like I, two did, strikes. How do I navigate? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, so I was like, I mean, that's like two strikes. I mean, well, not the not the Christian education would be a, a whole lot more um, accepting of it because I mean, there's you know the seminaries and whatnot. They teach the Sethite theory for sure. you know for the most part. Certainly. Oh yeah, there were giants because you know they were they were only about you know six feet tall because everybody else was four feet tall. You know. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> right. That's why, you know, whether you become a lettered academic or, you know, a researcher, researcher of any quality, uh, you, you inevitably have to, you, you have two curricula. You have the orthodox approach, and then you have all the other stuff, the stuff that takes chances, so to speak. Hmm. Um, the stuff that's sort of cutting edge, and it, it, it might be true, it might not be, it might be valid, it might not be... Um, it's on the fringe. It's on the periphery, in other words. Uh, and so e- even throughout my schooling, um, while I was doing the reading list for my classes, I was also reading, you know, Chuck Missler and uh, trying to think of some of the authors that I, um, Kurt Koch and um, I.D. Thomas. Yeah, I.D. Thomas. Yep, yep. Um, I, I was reading stuff like that, I, you know, outside. Of, plus, I was reading, um, as an undergraduate, I read a lot of, of, I was already starting to read a lot of anthropology of religion and comparative religion even before I got into graduate school. And so I, I still have the copy of James Frazier's Golden Bough that I bought when I was an undergraduate. Um, it's a good grief. I've had it for 25 years. That's impossible. How is that possible? <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. I don't know about you. I'm still 18 in my head. So when I, it's like, wait yeah, a I know, I know. Well, you saw the picture of <laughs> yeah, me the other day posted, yeah, you know, with the bass guitar. I did, man. That's that's how I am still in my mind. And my my buddy that I, I <laughs> played drums with me in uh, a band in high school, he he still tells me, man. You, he says, I don't care how many degrees you have after your name. Your first language is always going to be dude. <laughs> the bass guitar dude. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's what's funny too, because I I do talk to some of my friends that I grew up with, you know, that go all the way back to you know grade school even, and we're still the same. We're all still the same, you know, and it's so weird because I sit there and I think to myself, because I mean, I'm 51 years old, and I think back to like my dad when he was 51, or even my you know my grandparents and stuff, and my dad was you know my dad can be pretty goofy too. He can he can definitely be pretty goofy. I mean one of the things we nice. one of the things we used to do as a, as a ritual because we were both in the army at the same time. We were in the same uh we were in the 1st and 110th Air Cav, but I was in the C troop and he was in D troop. But we would come home. Okay. We'd come home from work 
And uh, and I, when I still lived at my parents' house, you know, first thing we do get home is turn on Looney Tunes, and <laughs> we would sit there and watch Looney Tunes together. <laughs> you know, uh, on. It, it, I can remember my grandfather just you know walking around making stupid goofy sounds to himself and <laughs> drawing you know caricature cartoons and whatnot. So I'm like, I guess that sure. yeah. Do we ever really grow up? I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm wondering. I, I keep you, wondering, I, like, am I know, ever going to be 51 for real? <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, what was it Indiana Jones said? It's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. <laughs> it's the mileage. <laughs> get, get, getting a lot of mileage as a 50-year-old. <laughs> as an 18-year-old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, an 18-year-old, 50-year-old. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 50, 51 years of mileage for an 18-year-old, <laughs> I guess. Yep. I hear you. Yeah, so... Uh, so, I mean, you're, you're in uh, Christian academia you'd have all the problems of denying the Genesis 6 narrative. In secular academia, I mean, it's got to be exponentially worse, although they have to recognize that it's not just the Bible. I mean, there's numerous ancient cultures and and Native American cultures even that have these consistent stories of giants. So, I mean, what do they do with that? Do they just ignore it? Sure. Well, you know, the... They they recognize its cultural merit, you know, as part of the literature and the um, the intellectual traditions of, of these societies. Uh, you know, again, I, I was fortunate, you know, to have people on on my committee, you know, who understood that I I believed in these things, but but I could also treat them with a um, you know kind of um, scholarly distance if I needed to. Um, uh, so the the archaeologist that I had on my committee was a classicist and uh, the uh, Roman scholar that I had was also uh, a classicist and um, you know they they respected the journey that I took you know because my dissertation although it didn't deal directly my dissertation was on on Caesarea Philippi on, on Panaeus and its religious history, and although it didn't it didn't uh, deal directly with the giants and the watchers, uh, I have you know some pretty substantial portions of uh, the narrative itself that does because you know you inevitably have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So it's part of part of the history, part of the culture of that part of the Levant, um, and so I, on that level, I you know I I got a a great deal of respect and like I said I, I had I've had good colleagues you know in a career as a professor um, but that's been the exception in terms of, of respect for the research on these kinds of topics so as um, you started becoming a, a teacher are you the were, within your circle of other professors were you the fringe weird guy over there or, or you know you said you had re- the respect there but did people be like, yeah, Judd, he he goes, you know, <laughs> they give these sort of, yeah, he's well, you know, dot dot dot, whatever. Uh, and yeah. and on the yeah. other side of it, did you also have students going, yeah, but he's the guy I want to go to. <laughs> you know, the students well, seem to be yeah, more it's funny, yeah, it's funny that you put it that way because it, you know, in a lot of cases, it it, it was like that. Um, uh, I used to have coffee on Fridays at the last college I taught at with a good group of, of Christian guys. And, um, 
another colleague of ours who taught philosophy was invited to join us and my name came up and he said uh, Dr. Burton, uh, he studies that giant stuff, doesn't he? It, it, you know, as if it were something of high, high right. contempt or whatever. But you know, beyond uh, beyond the erudition of any sort of philosophical in- inquiry. Yeah. Uh, so I got that, but I, you know, I also had students, you know, uh, who came to my classes because, um, and again, not that these were central themes in my classes, but uh, you know, I, I was one of the. Prof- I was one of the professors who was teaching that, you know, there were civilizations in the Stone Age, city, city states that predated, um, you know, a- ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia and uh, the Indus River Valley. You know, that's the, that's the holy trinity of ancient civilization there. And why textbooks still hold on to that, that paradigm as the, the earliest of civilizations. Uh, I, I, I don't know, and I'm, I'm still critiquing in terms of, of papers that I'm writing. Uh, but students wanted to hear that stuff. Well, yeah, uh, it's, because it's... I was bringing I was bringing to them uh, up to date archaeological data. I was staying current in my field and and bringing them the new material and not mm-hmm. just parroting out of a textbook. Um, and you know we would deal with the weird and the strange you know the the mythology and and of course giants are inevitably going to come up in that topic and you get to you know you get to bring in well at one point in time there was more oxygenation in the atmosphere you know and when you have that you can have more greater uh you know uh, gigantism uh, of size yeah exactly exactly you know you have to look look no further than the megafauna you know that that walked the earth um and so you, you know, students enjoyed this, and and I, I tried to get them to think outside the box about the historical narrative. Anyway, um, yeah, you would have been you would have been so, the, the 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 science teacher, uh, you know, the history teacher that I would have, you know, if I had the choice, you would have been the type of guy that I would have chosen to. I don't want to go to his class, you know. Uh, I had a uh, his name was um, uh, Mr. Osborne. He was a, a science teacher in high school, and everybody knew that he was the kind of the weird guy. He was like the Doc Brown, you know, kind of strange guy. Like one time I came to class, and this this just uh, just to give you an indication of the type of guy he was. So we get to class, and you never knew what you were going to get when you get there, you know, because he was always off the wall. But he's sitting there, and he's just kind of looking like weird, like everybody, like he, he like he looked like he was high or something, you know, like what's up with what's up with this guy, right? <laughs> And we we saw him, you know, he 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 kept holding up this uh this jar of like a uh, rubber cement glue, <laughs> like he had been sniffing it or something, <laughs> you know? and you know he's looking at it like yeah I love this stuff you know, and and he just put it like up to his nose like as if he was sniffing it, and and all of a sudden all of his hair stood up whoop, like stood straight up and he's like yeah we're like we're like what. <laughs> And then he pulls out this static electricity charger thing that he had under his desk. That he's like, today we're going to talk about static electricity. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he put his hand on the static ball and his, sure. his hair went up. You know, well, you know, you need, the, you know, it's like, uh, like Teddy Roosevelt used to say. You know, um, he said you used to say that speeches had to be like circus posters, use bright colors and broad <laughs> brushstrokes. It keeps you interested. And sometimes you have to, be, you have to, you have to be like that in you know your presentation. Uh, of some of this material and um to me that's that's the really interesting part of of teaching history now admittedly 
Um, I was also not a, a myopic historian or history teacher. I had actually had field experience in doing archaeology and mm. ethnography. I'd, I had traveled, and I, I, I had colleagues who would come in and listen to, to some of my lectures at the end of it, and they would ask me, like, what are you doing here? Why aren't you teaching at, like, Harvard or Princeton or something that and I said well I you know I, I, I'm teaching here because it's where I feel called to teach um, but uh, you know again the sad fact of the matter is is that the academic landscape is, is just completely changed it's over bureaucratized and it's not good for students uh, it's not it's not not really healthy for for scholars who, who want to pursue um, you know, a research agenda that's that's unhampered by po the political environment. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking about the political environment, when one of the notes you said to me is like, well, the topic that I'm looking at may be, you know, may have some interesting correlations to what's going on on the political side. Uh, circling back around to your new thesis here with uh, leaders and rulers. Sure. So, uh, you okay, you're tracking down this path, the, the Rafa, the Rafaim, root words of this. And uh, so the the Raphaim, they were, you know, uh, right up there with the, because uh, you have Amorites, right, and you have Philistines mm -hmm. and, and other characters in the Bible that we know were giants uh, and or hybrids, like uh, I maintain the Hittites probably were, certainly were depicted. Or at least, at least had giants amongst them, amongst them, them as part of their society, yeah. And, and they were depicting these things, you know, regularly in their carvings and whatnot. Uh, oh my yes. So when you uh, like Amorites, we know they come from Amorius, son of Canaan, son of Ham. Philistines, we know, come from Kaftor. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can trace back in the table of nations in Genesis chapter ten. Raphaim, however, they appear to be a title uh, for a group of of giants. Uh, th rather than an ancestral, like you know, Amorius, for example, being the the person f uh, that was the the head of the the Amorite tribes, right, would be Amorius, son of Canaan. Um, so, and, and there's a few of them. We know that the giants became known by different cultures, by different the Zanzumim, and they have all these names that the the local indigenous tribes saw them, and they had names for them. So. In sure. your research, did you see that, that that's the case, that, that the Raphaim were maybe the earliest? Uh, they seemed to be around for a long time. That, that yes. became a name yes. for the Giants? Yeah. Um, you know, you can make, definitely make the argument that uh, they were the, the earliest of the post-flood uh, Giants. Um, and that, that goes right along with, you know, the 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 idiom not only the idiom of the name but the uh the recording and uh, like in the ugaritic literature and the, the funerary cults uh the, you know the placating and the worship the worship of these dead ancestor kings and and likewise the reverence that was given in um you know the the akkadian and sumerian material that we have and even later babylonian material that we have uh, I should say Amorite Babylonian, not not the later Neo Babylonian hmm. uh, material that um, you know that clearly designates these as the as ancient kings, um, and they're ancient enough that they're uh, the the place where their power emanates from now is where they're at, and that that is the in Mesopotamia that's the Apsu, the abyss. Hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I, I would say there's a good case to be made that the, the Rephaim or the the oldest of these these giant tribes that situate themselves in the Levant in the ancient Near East. So if I'm not mistaken, Clearly, if if I'm not mistaken, the first time that Raphaim show up is in the Genesis 14 war, uh, where you have right. the giants, the four kings and the five kings, and Josephus says, you know, Josephus comes out and tells you this was a war of giants, you know, fighting each other, uh, and we see that the Raphaim were defeated in uh, was it uh, a- uh, Ashtaroth Carnaim, I think. Uh huh. That's and, right. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So my calculations, if if they're correct, place the Genesis 14 war, you know, roughly about 400-ish years or so after the flood. Uh, so, I mean, this this is the first time that that I can recall seeing Raphaim appear in the Bible, and they appear to be, you know, in that generation of the Abrahamic generation there, because we have the Genesis 14 war taking place at that time. And so at the same time, you have... Um, uh, Arba, who has uh, the four sons that, uh, that become the Anakim later that the Israelites experience when they come in you know, after the Exodus. So do you think that it was just Amorites, Canaanite tribes that that took on the title of Raphaim, that that, that was where the word came from or where the association came from? Or, or, or Sorry, we're going to break right now, so we'll have to, <laughs> have to deal with that question when we get back from the break standpoint. Okay. And we're back on the Revolutionary Radio Project. I'm your host, Rob Skiba, and we are already in the second hour of the broadcast. Wow, time is flying by, as usual, when we start talking about things like this. Uh, Judd Burton is my guest, and Judd, right before the break, we were talking about the Genesis 14 war uh, that, best I could tell, is somewhere around 400 years or so after the flood. And in the Genesis 14 war, you have the four kings versus the five kings, and Josephus comes right out and tells you this was a, a war of giants. So my question right before we had to stop for the break was, uh, was this the this being the earliest reference we have in the Bible of Raphaim? Is do you find that there's a reference to Raphaim prior to this, and were, was that just a name that became associated with perhaps the Canaanite giants that, that you know they just that variety of the Canaanites maybe a you know subset of the Amorites or something were known as the Raphaim. What's your what's your take on that? Well, the the earliest occurrence of the word in the the region in general um, would have been in uh, uh, the Akkadian context. Um, so we're, the, the the zenith of Akkadian rule was between about 2350 BC and about 2000 BC, right before the the Amorite Babylonian period. So the you know they clearly knew about about the Rephaim, and that's why there's a good case to be made that these are these are the oldest strain of post-flood giants, uh, the old the oldest tribe. Now that's not to say that uh, you know again this this title uh, wasn't passed along to other uh, even human rulers because it was used. You know we also have records uh, uh, in uh, Mesopotamia that um, that word in fact was used uh, to designate um, uh, regional rulers in particular, uh, princes. So uh, the 
the concept just in terms of sequentially, you know, chronologically, um, exists before uh, the Abrahamic period, uh, the period of the patriarchs, um, at least as far back as 2350 BC. Mm. Well, probably you, older, pro- probably much older. Well, 2350. That's that's about the time of the flood, isn't it? 23. Let me look this up. Uh, I I often use this uh, wall chart. Yes, I have I. You, I have that very very same uh, chart. I freaking love this chart, man. <laughs> this this is awesome. So, well, I should qualify again. It, you know, if you if you subscribe to a Young Earth chronology, mm. um, which I don't, and uh, the I think the the, the flood date for twenty three forty eight. When they have twenty three forty eight, so that's that's right there. Um, you know, the conventional dating for for the Akkadian zenith is twenty about twenty three fifty. So um, you know, this brings up an interesting question. It's something that I'm I'm wrestling with myself, frankly. Um, I I can I can let me see I'll see how I can word this. I can accept that the Earth proper has been here a long time, uh, mm-hmm. and, and one of the reasons I do is because. We know that after the tribulation period, the millennial reign, and everything, we get a reset button. You know, there's a new heaven and a new earth. You know that the whole right. paradigm of new heaven. So I always thought, well, eternity goes both directions. You know, we yeah. we have yeah. a beginning, so we think eternity from our starting point forward, but it goes just as much the other way. Uh, and right. so I always thought, well, I mean, if we're gonna get a reset, I have no problem believing we could be in a reset. Um, I have no problem believing that. Um, but what has become a, a uh, a, a bit frustrating for me is, you know, I was raised King James and so the Masoretic timeline and, you, you know, all that. And this chart right here, this is, this goes very much by by that timeline. But if you start looking in the Septuagint, man, everything gets shifted. Everything gets, there's a much longer timeline. And when you start looking in the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the, you know, ancient Hebrew writings uh, that would say, for instance, that it was going to be 5,500 years from the birth of, or from the creation of Adam, to the the arrival of Christ would be 5,500. Well, on the Bishop Usher, you know, world chart timeline, it's 4,000. So you got 1,500 years missing in there, you know. And I know uh, our friend uh, Doug Woodward has got a book, Rebooting the Bible, and he's been, like, revisiting the other, you know, timeline that people don't want to seem to look at. So when it comes to timeline issues, you know, it's a frustrating thing because it's like, uh, who do you believe, right? I mean, you've, you've yeah, yeah, you got to pick one. Um, exactly, and I think I think you and I have had this conversation at some of the conferences we've been at. You know, um, that uh, you know, I, I like the way you put it. You know, time, eternity goes both ways temporally. Yeah. So, and we have such a foggy picture, even with with the scant archaeological evidence that we have from before um, the Pleistocene cat- cataclysm which I think is probably the Noahic flood hmm. so um, are, so are you a, a picture a, into that world view into that world is so go ahead uh, so I mean you're using uh, academic terms like Pleistocene and all that. Are are, are you uh, sort of like on the uh, Michael Heiser camp uh, where uh, 
the various time ages that we read about in our secular science textbook that that there have been civilizations that have existed within that paradigm or are you saying that what science is saying was millions of years ago could just as easily be truncated into fitting into the biblical timeline and what we consider you know the Cambrian explosion or the this or the that can fit within the biblical parameters of you know a few thousand years what is your sort of what's your take on that well, sort of thing? I, I... I tend to be I tend to be an old, old Earth uh, creationist, um, but that's not to say you know again. This stuff is tricky, like you say, and I, I'll be the first one to admit I'm wrong if if I can be convinced otherwise. Uh, but yeah, I, I sh- at least in terms of the chronology of the Earth, I share similar viewpoints with Dr. Heiser. Okay, so. Uh, but when we, I mean, the standard evolutionary model says the Earth has been had a, a number of cataclysmic events that have reset mm-hmm. all life on Earth, and uh, you know, f- for me, I'm like, well, I could see that there was a a Genesis one pre-flood event, pre pre Noah yeah. pre Noah flood event. Um, right. So you right. have, and and in Joshua, it tells you that there was a, a another pre-flood flood. During the days of Enosh, that the uh, mm-hmm. Gihon River over uh, over flooded uh, a third of the inhabited Earth at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you have whatever, like in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and Earth, I would say, became uh, Tohu Vavohu because uh, we see that He didn't create the Earth without form and void, but we see that it's without form and void in Genesis one. Mm-hmm. So. The people who subscribe to the uh, pre-Adamic civilization would say that, well, there was a civilization that got wiped out prior to Genesis 1-2, you know, uh, and then we have the Spirit of God moving across the waters, and then we have the recreation of the new earth at that time that extended for, you know, a number of years until the days of Enosh, and there's a rebellion, there's another flood, and then we have the flood of Noah, which is, at least according to that chart, about 2350 B.C., and so those have been the the three extinction level events that I could point to biblically, within a biblical t- timeline. That it seems to me science, quote unquote science, may be you know attaching zeros to the numbers, <laughs> you know, and maybe looking at the same thing, just you know extending the timeline a bit. Sure. Yeah, and that's th- that's that's the thing is that like. Um you know, uh, Dr. Aaron Judkins, who's a mutual friend of ours, yeah. and he and I are, are finishing this book on Gobekli Tepe, and he and I, you know, differ on the age of the Earth. He's a, he's a young Earth creationist. I'm an I, I'm an old Earth creationist. What we agree on, though, is the sequence of deposition. You know, like you're mm-hmm. saying, you know, the conventional view, the academic view, is that that the ages are spread farther apart. And in the biblical timeline, they, they seem to be closer together. But the deposition, the stratification that we're looking at here is the same. And so, hmm. you know, that's that's how Aaron and I are, are able to work together. And, you know, hey, it's fine if we have we have differences. I, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. You and I don't agree, you know, hmm. about everything. We all have different pieces of the puzzle. We all bring different skill sets to the table. So this is a very daunting problem. Yeah. So uh, you were targeting on the 2350-ish time period for mm-hmm. 
is would you say it's an arrival of the Raphaim, or would you say it's a acknowledgement of them? You know, perhaps as a title for, you know, I, I, biblically speaking, the giants are the Canaanites. Genesis chapter ten six through twenty tells you who who beget who, and later we see who's what. You know, uh, so you know this is one of the problems that many people you know become atheists because they read the Bible and they think that you know God's a schizophrenic genocidal maniac you know that's like you know kill the women kill the children right. wipe out the animals you know kill everything but when you understand like Steve Quayle says the Genesis 6 narrative is the Rosetta Stone for understanding yeah. all of scripture is that when you understand uh, yeah, I love that yeah it's that I, when, I, when I first heard him say that it was like a huge light bulb went off and it solved a big problem for me because when I you look at Israel's campaigns, uh, military campaigns, yeah, there are plenty of times where they could take women and children and animals and whatnot as spoils of war, you know, like any other conquest. But then there are other times where very specific groups are targeted for, you know, you got to kill the women, kill the children, kill the animals, kill everything. And in every case, those are the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, you know, the Jebusites, the, you know, they're the ites that, yeah. that are the Canaanites, that are the giants that we we see in the land. So when you understand that really what Yahuwah is doing is he is eradicating the abominations, the yeah. the, the the giants that weren't supposed to be here, you know, that he didn't intend sure. in his original creation. So it, with that acknowledgement that the, the giants trace back to the Table of Nations, Genesis 10, 6 through 20, are the Raphaim a subset of these characters or do you see that maybe something even more supernatural perhaps uh, and darker uh, a, a resurrection zombie type of a pop, you know thing because you have these weird texts like in Jubilees where Canaan uh, 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 I think it's son of our Faxed anyway he's one of Shem's our Faxed's son uh-huh. yeah he's he's omitted from the King James but he shows up in the Septuagint mm-hmm. and Jubilees and other texts finds some writings of the Watchers from the pre-flood world, and it says he yeah. he sinned because of it and hid it from Noah, and that's all you get. You're like, what? what, what? So do you think yeah. <laughs> that, that there's maybe more to that story? Do you, would you say the Raphaim maybe come out of something perhaps supernatural like that, or do you think that they are a title that has been attached to the characters in Genesis 10, 6 through 20? I, I think any of those scenarios are possible. You know, um, some people subscribe to the idea that there was a second incursion after the flood. Some people that time was carried on through one of uh, Noah's sons or one of, one of Noah's sons' wives. Um, but you bring up an, an interesting sort of point about the the zombie issue. You know, is this you know is there some sort of supernatural or or a ritual or, or magical functionary at work here. Yeah, I'm thinking. Uh, the, I'm thinking like the this. like the orcs, right? In, in right. In Tolkien. They were, yeah, exactly. They were like elves originally, and then they were corrupted. Uh, yeah, there may be something. There may be something to that. Um, uh, because of uh, you know, I, one of the. I think one of the translations of Rephaim that I saw one time was of the frightener was the frighteners or something like that, which would indicate that that their their visage, their appearance, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, was 
was different enough. It wasn't just purely anthropomorphic. It was different enough to instill fear uh, in people. And it wasn't just that they were tall, that there was something about them, you know, that, that you know, to use a phrase from Star Wars, you know, when you got around these guys, there was a tremor in the force <laughs> kind right. of a feeling. Right. Uh, the, the dark side is a pathway so I, to many things some would consider to be unnatural, right? <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you, Shreve Palpatine. <laughs> Shreve, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think all of those scenarios are interesting, and they're you know they're all possible. Um, I would you know the the thing that occurs to me here that's interesting is is particularly the Ugaritic material. It is in the ritual and the propitiation and uh, placation uh, of these long dead ancestor kings. Um, so it's not only do they seem to be the earliest uh, of these giant tribes, but there seems to be something that is, you know, again, corrupted and, and counter uh, to their creation that maybe even goes beyond just the, the blending of, of angelic and, and human DNA. Um, so it, it, it is high strangeness, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh so your thesis is called The War of the Words, God, Kings, and Their Titles, a preliminary report on the linguistic relationship between the Raphaim and royal titles in Eurasian languages. You like long book titles, don't you? <laughs> I, I whittled it down. Oh, I, did I you? Just, <laughs> That's what, that one's whittled down? <laughs> well, the, I, I, I put the initial title. The subtitle just sort of ex explicates it, but I thought, I thought that the war of the words uh, would be a little catchier than, than just leaving it as the the Originally, it was just the subtitle. So, uh, so it would be the, the title would be War of the Words, and the subtitle is God, Kings, and Their Titles? And then the, and the no, it would be uh, it be War of the Words, God Kings, and their their titles. And the, but the the original name of the report was the subtitle that you just spouted off. <laughs> okay, eighteen miles long. Yeah, eighteen miles long. Cool. So, how far along are you on this? And uh, you know, what conclusions are you deriving from this this new research that you're doing? Well, it, you know, to me, it seems like that there's there's a clear strategic deliberate aim to uh, sort of engineer this word in uh, it culturally carries well and that shouldn't surprise us because the demonic this is how the demonic realm operates you know they've, they've been um, meddling in human human affairs um against our, our, you know, our best interest, uh, for millennia. Um, why would we suspect that they wouldn't do the same thing with the languages that we speak? Um, and, um, my surmise is that, uh, the, the continuation of this title, uh, in, um, Eurasian languages and Indo-European languages, uh, and e even some non-Indo-European tongues as well. Uh, that, that there's a there's a very specific set of, of negative character traits that come along with this uh, 
Mm. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, that kings were gods on the earth, and you know, even consider how how relatively or how long lived an idea it is that that uh, even into modernity that that for instance the kings and queens of Europe thought that they were divinely appointed by God to rule over their underlings. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always to their best interest either because they were allowed to indulge their their avarice but you know the the thing that that really illustrates this to me and really drives it home are you know just taking a, a look at some of these words um, that sort of illustrate that morpheme the the containing of that morpheme the r and the vowel uh, that I was talking about, and if you'll indulge me here, I'll, I'll share some of them. Yeah. Uh, now, you don't have to go too far outside of the ancient Near East scope to begin to see that, uh, uh, you know, this is the case. Now, I mentioned wor- words like the Sanskrit and Hindi, Raja, uh, in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, but in, in languages such as Linear A, which was the, the, ver- the proto-Greek language that the Minoans uh, you mentioned Kaftor a minute ago. The, this was the language that they spoke. And I believe this is on the Phaistos disc. It's actually talking about uh, King Minos uh, of Minotaur mm. and Labyrinth fame. Mm. Um, he's he's referred to as King Minos, but in, in Linear A, this would be Ruja Mina. So mm. there again is the, you can see the morpheme would be initial R and the vowel uh, in the title there. Um, the Hittites borrowed a lot of words from Mesopotamian languages, so Rab does occur, Rabah does occur amongst uh, the Hittite tongue. Um, in uh, the Gothic tongues, which would have been spoken by um, tribes like the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and Alans and Sarmatians, uh, the word for king was rakes. In Irish Gaelic, the word is hri. In Azerbaijani, the word is kral. Bengal, which would have been an, another subset of Sanskrit, raja. Uh, the Basque tongue, which is an Iberian language, uh, erega. Uh, Bosnian, kralju. Uh, Bulgarian, kral. Catalan, which is another uh, Iberian tongue, Ray. Corsican is Ray. Croatian, Kralj. Czech, Kral. Esperanto, which is a relatively recent amalgam language, Rego. French, Roy. Galician, Ray. Hindi, Raja. Hungarian, Karoz. Indonesian, Raja. Italian, Ray. Kurdish, Kural. Latvian, uh, Karolis. Lithuanian, Karolios. Macedonian, Nepali, Raja. Polish, Krol. Portuguese, Re. Romanian, Reggae. 
Scottish Gaelic, which would be related to the Irish Gaelic, Rig. Uh, and the list just goes on and on. Spanish, Ray, uh, Turkish, Kroll, um, Ukrainian, Koral, uh, all containing that R vowel cognate. And, so, uh, and as I say, this, this is just a, a cursory <clears throat> survey that I just started with. And so, uh, what is it? Is, is it Latin, Rex? Rex, like, uh-huh. like T Rex, you know, King. Right. Um, a lot of these that you mentioned have like a a K sound in front of them, like crawl. That's right. A very subtle K sound. Uh huh. So where does that linguistically? Where does that start to creep in, or why does that start to creep in, in your opinion? Well, you see that in a lot of the Slavic languages. That's that seems to be. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned the, the Gothic, which would have been a kind of precursor to the later Slavic tongues, not by much, uh, and certainly related in that, that grouping of, of language families. Um, but, you know, keep in mind that this, this word's originally traveling from the lower reaches of the Proto-Indo-European heartland, which would have been eastern Turkey and nor- northern Mesopotamia. Uh, you know, in the connection with the the Rafa, Rob, Rapi uh, subset that we're looking at, um, so they're traveling. They're going to be affected uh, and heard slightly differently and pronounced slightly differently in the languages that absorb them. Again, this is a, this is a natural phenomenon that occurs in the development of, of languages, um, and so that that initial K becomes. Uh, becomes very, uh, very much the, the, uh, a, a part of Slavic. Now, wasn't, uh, back in the 80s, wasn't there a movie named Crawl? Was that like a, I don't know, like a Conan Beastmaster? There was, yes, there was, a, there was Crawl. And you know, uh, something that occurred to me was, is I was looking at these the other day. Um, the main villain in Star Trek Beyond was named Kroll. Oh, that's right. Hmm. No. So it's not uh, just just as, just as a geeky footnote. <laughs> just as that. a geeky footnote. Yeah, exactly. Um, the whole idea of kings thinking that they are gods. Uh, I mean that it carries forward even to today. Even today, with uh, yeah. U.S. Yeah. presidents and the apotheosis. You know. The, the whole idea of apotheosis and, and the lying in state ceremonies and things that we do within our nation's capital. Now, it's not quite as overt as it was in, right. you know, in ancient times and other cultures and stuff like that. But, it, I mean, it's interesting because... Uh, yeah, off- but there, there, there is a kind of civil religion. And uh, there was a, a historian named Robert Bella who wrote a book by the same name called Civil Religion specifically about those kinds of things that you mentioned in the American context. So, yeah, right here in our own back, backyard, we live with the legacy of it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, we got about a minute before we go to break. Probably a good spot to end on before we go to our final break. But, uh, you know, I mean, it was I've been we were talking off air about uh, the TV series Vikings, and it's interesting how, you know, they get to these positions of leadership and then they start to proclaim themselves a god. You know, like there was this, with the exception of the Hebrews, I don't, I don't see, not that I can think of, I don't see anybody in the Bible, uh, the Hebrews, 
setting themselves up as both king and god because you know even though there were apostate kings they didn't consider themselves to be god uh so that seems to be something that uh, they were probably alone in when it looks at when you look at the cultures around them everybody else seemed to take up yeah. the idea but uh we're going to break yeah, right now and we'll come yeah. back and talk some more when we come back from the break And we're back on the Revolutionary Radio Project. I am your host, Rob Skiba, and I'm talking with my guest, Judd Burton. And uh, Dr. Burton, right before the break, we were talking about uh, uh, kings and various cultures assuming that they were gods and trying to get their people to be convinced that they were. Uh, aside from the Hebrews, uh, it didn't, I don't see, at least not that I can think of, even though there were kings of Israel that weren't, you know, the best, I don't see them saying, hey, listen, I'm God. Uh, uh, but everybody else, I mean, even to this day, uh, you yeah. have, uh, uh, what's, it, uh, what's the guy in Korea? Kim Jong-un? Kim Jong-un. Uh, there was a, a video that I saw recently of a, a woman that escaped North Korea. And in part of her testimony, she's like, you got to understand, he says he's God there. Like, that we are, we're taught in that society to believe that he is God. And when I was a missionary in Cuba, I found the same thing, that... That people, even to this day, you know, 20th and 21st century, I, you know, I was there, uh, when was I there, 2004, um, they, they would say, you know, Castro's my God. And why? Yeah. Well, because, first of all, they're brainwashed from birth that he's he's everything, uh, and every the state serves him, and, you know, you, you get like three channels on your television, and they're all, you know, in the case of Cuba, it was like one channel is reruns of the revolution all day you know all, every day so it's just footage of the revolution and then the rest is propaganda you know uh so in that society here's their provider he's their rewarder he's their punisher he's their everything so he's their god uh, but i mean did you see that, that this this sort of thing except for israel uh was prevalent throughout the uh ancient world Oh, absolutely! It's it's almost perennial, you know. Even even the the king, you know, you mentioned the apostate kings in in Israel who were doing weird, not 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 just not just the worship of Baal and Astarte, but weird stuff like worshiping Yahweh with a consort, you know. Yeah. Um, they they sort of tiptoed around that, and and in a in a kind of henotheistic way, they still weren't weren't really willing to completely cross Yahweh if that makes any sense um, but yeah you that, that those societies seem to be the exception to the rule because it's almost um, you know not just in the the ancient old world civilizations but even in in the new world you know you look at uh, uh, Mesoamerican civilization the uh, starting even with the the Olmec and the Maya you know they're the rulers of their, the kings of their city states, you know, made it clear that they were they were gods on earth and emissaries of the gods. Um, so, so that that is the the overwhelming you know rule rather than the exception. So when it talks about defeated the Raphaim at, in uh, Kiriath Karnaim, we know that this is a war of ten kings, or nine kings, mm -hmm. nine kings, four against five. Um, so do you think then that the the reference there is this 
defeated the giant kings would be the, the appropriate understanding of that instead of defeating an entire people group called the Raphaim because uh, whenever I see Raphaim it seems to be like Aga Bashan uh, for instance well that would make a lot more sense then if that's the case I'm just thinking out loud then that if Raphaim is simply a title of kingship that is also associated with gigantism in, in certain cases throughout the Bible mm-hmm. uh, then it would the the, applic- the application here then would be that these were giant kings so if we have a bunch of kings that were giants that were mm-hmm. defeated during the Genesis 14 war then it would make sense if Agabashan was alive at that time that he would be of the remnant of the or you know sometime not too long after that because it's another four, right. it's 430 years from the from the giving of the covenant of Abraham to the Exodus and then they go into the land and so and then they encounter Agabashan so then he could be uh, simply a descendant of the giant kings so sure. instead of Sure. Uh, a people group called the Raphaim, it would be, the association would be the kings that were of the giants known as the Raphaim. Right. And I, you know, look, you know, in an uh, interview with the giant, that was one of the things that I, I was trying to do because anthropologically, it, it, it seemed to me that, that the peoples in the Levant were a mix. You had, um, you had a mix of, of giants and, and humans, uh, and the, but the, the the human segments of those societies had been corrupted, uh, not not just culturally and institutionally, but perhaps you know, uh, obviously on a supernatural level as well. Um, and so that that's why I, I made you know statements in that book, like um, you know the the giants did become rulers of city states, and uh, they did become sort of the uh, the upper echelons of soldiery in those places uh and you know as the herd began to be thinned out so to speak they they you you start seeing them as kind of mercenary soldiers uh, as in the case of of goliath and his brothers uh, at gath that's really fascinating that, that clears up a lot of things for me right now frankly because uh, the raphaim have always been sort of a wild card in my mind it's like what are these people but yeah. if the word is is a direct association to kingship, as you seem to be laying out a really solid case for in multiple languages, at least having a similar linguistic root to them, then the Raphaim become uh, those of the hybrids that were in positions of of leadership, royalty. You know, maybe perhaps even the coneheads. Uh, you know, like in Peru, for instance. You know, it, they, a lot of times we find these people. That they they were the rulers, uh, Akhenaten, Nefertiti. Uh, you know, the, these were strange, abnormal people that were considered rulers. That the that the, the 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 that the people that they ruled over later would emulate by strapping boards to their heads. Like, well, we want to be like the royalty, right? And let's strap baby right. boards to our babies' heads. That maybe the the simplest, you know, the Occam's razor here. The simplest solution to this whole thing is that Raphaim were simply the giants, or let's just say hybrids, as a general term, that were known as positions in positions of of, of royalty. Right, and you know, you mentioned the head binding too. You know that we have archaeological evidence that that probably originated uh, in the prehistoric and, and ancient Near East. Hmm. Um, so they're, you know, they were clearly trying to emulate. You know, the implication, of course, there being also that they were trying to emulate their ancestor kings. Um, 
which you know takes us back to you know what did these things look like that made them so frightening you know as set apart from yeah you know just being a very tall human you know uh, clearly there was a not not just in terms of their their phenotype their genetic outward expression but there was something supernatural about it uh, about it as well um well, yeah, I mean, because we, uh, we, we have other descriptions like the long neck ones, uh, Anakim, I think, are the ones that long necks, and you have people groups sure. that do the the neck binding thing to stretch their necks out, you know, and they have the, you know, why would people do this, right? Unless that they saw, uh, you know, there were people probably genetically uh, predisposed to having those traits that then the people wanted to emulate later, and that through f- forcing the modification of their otherwise normal bodies to uh, look like that. And, and there are other characters that um, uh, I think Josephus was, that was talking about that. They, they made this screeching sound like the, this, they were this noise that they could make that was just yes. terrifying to people. You know, the, um, the, uh, the Avim, mm. I think it was the Avim. Yeah. Uh, I apologize. Um, but I think that the, one of the translations of that word is the buzzers. Yeah. Uh, and it was something about their, their language that, that was markedly different than the spoken tongues in that region. So, so you know, you that and that opens up a whole new box of, of morphological questions, you know, on the physical anthropological side, because that means that the, their throat structure, the hyo, hyoid bone, yeah. That actually makes it possible for speech was completely different. It was a completely different mechanism. Um, I, I, again, it's it's real high strangeness stuff. But yet, it it shouldn't be outside of of the realm of 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 rigorous uh, respected research. Yeah, it, it makes me think like, you know, what's the deal with uh, birds that can talk? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, I've had parakeets growing up and some of these birds, like, and, and a parrot also, that had, you could actually have physical conversations with these things. Like, mm-hmm. they would they would not only be able to speak our language, but they could understand it and logically answer a question. You know, like, I could t- tell a story one time in my previous marriage, uh, my ex-wife, she had a parrot that hated me because she... Parrots are very um, jealous creatures. They're very possessive, mm-hmm. and you know she had had this parrot for quite some time before I came into the picture. And and Frankie was his name. He hated me, and he would do things like and, and he always say we're like, "What you doing, huh? What you doing, huh? What you doing?" And he would just drive you crazy. So one time I'm working on this VCR, right? And it was broken. I'm trying to fix it, and the cage is off to the side, and and he's going, "What you doing, huh? What you doing, huh? What you doing?" <laughs> he kept doing it to drive me crazy. And I'm like, shut up! I'm working on the. My ex, she says, just tell him what you're doing. He'll shut up. So I'm like, I'm working on the VS, VCR, Frankie. Shut up! He goes, okay, <laughs> right. So like he he would comprehend things, and then not only he not only did he shut up, uh, but I started seeing him out of the corner of my eye, like walking sideways across the bars, you know, and as I'm working, and and all of a sudden this turd goes right by my face. <laughs> Oh my like, gosh! He literally lined himself up to, uh, between the bars. And went, <laughs> he went. He launched around at me, went right by my face. I'm like, man, like <laughs> these things can think, you know. Um, 
And so, you know, my research uh, yeah. has led me to believe that the the that the variety of giants that entered in, you know, that were immediately pre-flood and possibly post-flood were more animal-human uh, hybridization than angel-human. Angel-human goes back to the days of Jared, at least as far as I can tell. And then the last 120 years leading up to the flood, we it's it's all about you know blending species and animals and stuff like that. So it makes me wonder if perhaps you know these characters that you're just talking about, you know, maybe they were blended with birds and they. You know, or something that they had that screeching sound to them. It's entirely possible. You know, I I, I don't discount anything. You know, when it when it comes to the the sort of the genetic tampering that we we know went on in the pre-flood world, and that knowledge, of course, was passed down. And if we're to believe, you know, sources like um, you know Jasher that say that you know that that this knowledge was actually scrawled on on rocks, yeah, jubilees, and, and preserved. Uh, then, then it was likely utilized and, and recycled in the post-flood world. So um, it it, just, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But it's it's interesting to me because you know in in both the case of the Anakim and the Avim, their names. Their names tell you something about their appearance or their nature or their physiology. Uh, you can say the same thing about the Rephaim too. Uh, but um, it, it, it's you know it opens up all all kinds of possibilities about the the about why why would you not be interested in studying you know the the physiology even if you had to. Uh, even if you had to sort of, um, you know, hypothetically, you know, reconstruct what that might have looked like, you know, what their physiology might have looked like. To me, that's just fascinating. I, I mean, oh, yeah. if I were an anatomist or, or physiologist, uh, I, I'd be, I would be all over that. Um, and, and yet, the, you know, I, well, I think, you know, as believers, we know why this stuff is peripheralized because it. It, it's one piece of evidence amongst many that that proves that the biblical narrative is is true and historically accurate in real space and time. Yeah, I, I was just uh, sorry for the little bling bling sounds just now. I was no. trying to look up something, and those are just computer noises when I was trying to look it up. But uh, I was looking up uh, Genesis 14 there because I mean, and I did a study on this a long time ago, so I don't have it all. Is recall right now, but I did a study on the names of each of the characters there, of the five kings and the four kings, and you had like Ariak, uh, king of Elasar, and uh, I think it was Ariak uh, that was lion-like. Mm -hmm. And when you think of think characters like the the lion men of Moab, like what mm -hmm. is that? I mean, what are we dealing with here? And so. And even when you look in like Egyptian iconography, these characters Anubis and different characters that you know have, uh, you know, human body, bird head, or you know, jackal head, or you know, sure. some kind of combinations there. And if these characters are kings or in some level of rulership, then they would be um, considered the Raphaim. Well, the Mesopotamian stuff is is in my mind very clear about it you read uh you read the creation epic the enuma elish and it talks about all kinds of hybrid uh gigantic beings like lion men and scorpion men and, right 
Um, yeah. So it's 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 very explicit and it's it's detailing of the appearance of these things. So I'm looking at uh, the larger context of Genesis 14 uh, right now. It's Genesis 14:5, and in the 14th year came Kedarlaomer of the kings that were with him and smote the Raphaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shava Kiriath uh, Kiriathium. So. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm. It, so, is it your thesis here? Or are we just kind of brainstorming this out loud here on the show? Is it your thesis then that the Raphaim are, in fact, the giants or the hybrids that were specifically uh, of kingship and royalty, or are we talking about another, yes. another breed? Well, there's there is that component of it, but but you know, and that's not to say that other giants like the the Anakim. Um, couldn't I mean obviously they did they did occupy roles of leadership um, uh, you know the the Hebron was named after you know one of its kings Arba um, but yeah not only that that the Rephaim were occupied these kingly positions uh, but also that that um, because they did uh, not just in the Levant but also in Mesopotamia and and other places, uh, that word and all of its cultural uh, milieu and all, all of its all of its idiom uh, was carried forth because of it. It was all part of a design uh, that they had. So I'm, I'm looking at some of the other uh, words there, like in that sentence that I just read there in Genesis four. Amroth, Amrothil would. Yeah, would he, he's a dark sayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that name is well, and he, he, even the even the the uh, um, uh, the uh, Akkadian uh, Rop is contained within the uh, you know his name. Um, you know another uh, another person who is probably a contemporary of and may very well have been the same person as, as Amraphel is Hammurabi. Ne- see that in there as well, Hammurabi. Hmm. Well, in uh, several uh, uh, Jewish or Hebrew literature identifies Amraphel as Nimrod, so mm-hmm. it would seem that that's a, a title, or Nimrod's a title, either way. Um, but when I look at uh, Genesis 5, you have the... So if, if I read this with this understanding and looking at the meanings of this, I'll, just, I'll interpret it this way. And in the 14th year came Ketolotmar and the kings that were with him and smote the hybrid giant kings, Raphaims, in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzims. Zuzims are roving creatures. That's what, according to the... This is one of my favorite books, A Dictionary of Scripture, Proper Names by J.B. Jackson. Just It's all the names in the Bible. Uh, so... So, you, Rob, Rob, you are that book's greatest proponent. That oh, yeah. guy should be a multi-billionaire. From... I tell you, he, he should be making lots of money. I should get royalties because I sell it. I'm you always should. seriously, I'm always advocating this book. But I mean, so it would be like the the hybrid kings in Ashtaroth, the roving creatures in Ham, and uh, Emims is the terrors. So it'd be and mm-hmm. the terrors in Shabbat Kiryat. Yeah. So. I mean, what a sentence, right? In the 14th year came Ketolotomar and the kings that were with him and smote the, the giant hybrid kings in Ashtaroth and the roving creatures in Ham and the terrors in Shava. <laughs> it's like, what is happening there, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't get more Lord of the Rings. <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Then, I mean, it, 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 
it is high strangeness and you know i i gosh i, I would just i would i would love to be able to to excavate man uh, in that vicinity well dude you know i talked to you about this a long time ago i believe yeah. right here the genesis 14 war the the, the was it the west northwest uh, corner of the Dead Sea I think, uh, mm-hmm. maybe or wherever it was the the slime pits I there. The, I think it was the southern end. Southern end. The, the slime slime pits were. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I'm convinced that's the greatest archaeological find of all time is waiting for us to dig up. Because I mean, you got five kings armies worth of giants and hybrids that are probably well preserved considering the conditions in that area. Uh, right, like wow, <laughs> what, what can yeah, we find if, there? If you have the present, if you have, you know, bituminous material and uh, you know, petroleum, um, it's it's going to act as a, a preservative for organic material that otherwise would have, you know, been exposed to the elements and and eroded away and just completely decomposed because that's what happens to organic material in the the archaeological record for the most part. So can you imagine a, a DARPA-like agency going there, digging these probably extremely well-preserved entities up and <laughs> uh, messing uh, around with we them? Almost, we almost don't have to imagine that anymore. <laughs> You're right. Sadly, probably somebody's already doing it. Yeah. These days. Well, we got about uh, five minutes left in the broadcast, so uh, I'll let you take it from here. Uh, where do you want to leave our listeners, and where can they go to find out more information on your latest research and anything else you've got going? Sure. Well, I'm just about to finish this report, and I'm actually going to make it available um, as a download. I'll I'll send you a link, and I'll put a link in the description. A link in the description. I'll put a link on my my website, Burton Beyond. I'll put one on the institute website too, um, tioba.org, and uh, uh, people can uh, click on that, and um, it, it'll I'll probably. You know, for four or five dollars, you can have this report that's just really hot off the press. I mean, before I've even even considered submitting it, you know, to a journal or anything. I want people to take a look at this for themselves because I, I I'm confident that there's something here, and um, I I'm uh, you know I teach classes through the institute, um, and uh, I've got a sale right now. People can buy the whole 12 course module for 150 bucks uh, and study with me. And um, you, all you do is email me at professorburton at yahoo.com. People that want to keep up with me that way, you can follow me on YouTube, on, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, always uh, trying to put up new con- content. Uh, I'm, uh, in fact, when we're done here, I'm, I'm going to be getting back to an Antiquity X episode that I, I'm working on. And cool. uh, lots of lots of wheels in motion. Um, uh, like I said, uh, Dr. Judkins and I are finishing this book up on Gobekli Tepe in the Bible. Uh, that's going to be a Defender Publishing publication. And um, I've got five more shows lined up where I'm going to be talking about this this very same thing. Uh, but uh, I, I invite people to take a look look at this material. Uh, Follow me. Hey, come study with me. Uh, now's a good time to do it. Very cool. Uh, we got about three minutes left. Why don't you tell people who aren't familiar with Antiquity X, what is that? I'm excited about Antiquity X, but uh, you just teased it out there without explaining it. So if you sure. take a few minutes um, to explain yeah. that. Well, I, I've got a number of programs that I run on, on my YouTube channel, uh, 
some of them are kind of basic, like the Beyond Report, and then I've got Quick Classics, which is uh, uh, Greek and Roman antiquities, uh, often with a with a dovetail with biblical studies. I do I do biblical study stuff on there too. Um, Antiquity X is a um, is a show that uh, the the theme that I have for it is we ask strange questions about our strange past. So it's got it, it's it's meant meant to ask these questions uh, with an eye towards the the supernatural, the paranormal, uh, and, and kind of oriented towards ancient mysteries questions uh, within the scope of a biblical worldview. And um, yeah, those seem to to get. Uh, most of the hits and so i I've, I've really been trying to develop some good content uh for for antiquity x um i've got one on the magi that i'm about to put up uh then i've got some some viewer choice uh topics um but it, it's been a lot of fun i try and set the tone with a quote from uh, uh robert howard's conan series about between the time when the waters drank Atlantis and the, the rise of the sons of Arius. So it's got that kind of a feel to it. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, if you, if you like delving in, into, into that sort of thing, you can take a deep dive with me, uh, in antiquity X. Very cool. Yeah. I like that. Strange questions about our strange past. It's sort of a X file, biblical X files series. Uh, right, it's uh, and I've got I've got another one uh, which I need to do a little bit more, uh, and that's Sunday School X, and it it covers a lot of a lot of stuff largely within the scope of the the biblical parameters, uh, but it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like Sunday School meets the X Files. Yeah, nice, very cool. Well, as always, Judd, uh, fantastic discussion. I always enjoy having these talks with you. I will put links as you give them to me. I'll put them in the description so people can check them out. And uh, look forward to seeing the next thing you come up with because it's always some interesting, thought-provoking things to consider. So thanks so much, Judd, for joining me this evening on the Revolutionary Radio Project. My pleasure. Thanks, Rob. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, We'll see you back next week on the Revolutionary Radio Project here on Truth Frequency Radio. Good night, everybody.